0: As you make your way there, we do want to, in addition to what Steve has already said, we do want to just celebrate our fathers today, and we're thankful for each one of you men who are devoted to um, glorifying God through your families, and leading your families in such a way that is pleasing in God's sight, and setting them apart, as the scripture says, loving your wife as Christ loved the church, raising up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And um, really there's probably nothing more important in this life than those things. And so we say uh, thank you to the men who are here and are filling that role. Um, If you've showed up a little bit late, we did hand out a book earlier uh, called Masculine Mandate. And I encourage you if you showed up late to go ahead and stop by the sound booth on your way out and um, ask somebody for one of those books and I believe it will be a blessing to you. Um, One thing about books It's always hard to give a total affirmation of a book because you're going to always find some bones in there. And so what I always say to people is, you know, eat the meat and spit the bones out. All right? So you might find some things in there that might not be in uh, full agreement with uh, your direction or position, but but listen to what God has to say through other men and um, ask him to give you some guidance and direction as to what he wants to do in your life. Um, first John chapter number two, the first, uh, first one and a half chapters as we've already studied, John writes about a group of people who claim to be Christians, um, but, but lack some of the evidences of true Christianity. Um, some of the evidences that we've talked about already, humility, repentance, or, uh, the acknowledging of our sins, and being willing to forsake those sins, obedience to the commands of God's word, and love. And we wanna remember that these evidences are not ways by which a person comes to know the Lord. Um, they're not salvific in nature. In other words, we don't love people so that we can be saved. We don't obey God's word so that we can be saved. We don't submit, we don't have humility, we don't have these things so that something might happen, but because something has happened, these things become natural to us. The the idea is is that when a person gets saved, they become a new creation. They become a new person. And all the things that were were true about them prior to their conversion are no longer true about them. It doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with those things and perhaps deal with them for the remainder of our life uh, from a fleshly perspective, but our our makeup, who we are, is completely different. We're not the same anymore. And John writes to give some, really a challenge to this church, to this group of believers, to say that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is really one. And there's really nothing, if you think about it in the Christian life, there's very few things that are more discouraging for a devoted Christian than to watch a group of undevoted Christians who claim to be in a relationship with the same Lord that you are, but yet they live a very, a very undisciplined, um, unfocused, unholy life. And, and it's frustrating to watch that happen, but yet, but yet we see it on a regular basis. So what John does is he gives, us, he gives the people here a kind of a pattern, he does it throughout the entire book of things, people who say that they're Christians but live this way. And he says, at the end of the day, these people are not true believers. And we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be envious of them, amen? Okay? But we should be burdened for them. And there's no one worse in the world than to somebody who has light, but that that light is actually darkness. Because that darkness is, e- is even greater because of that. In chapter two, towards the middle, John makes a transition, and that's where we're going to be at this morning, and we're going to be in verses 12 down to verse number 14. Now, John makes a transition from talking about these group, this group of people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be followers of Christ, but there are certain evidences that are not there, and therefore he concludes that they're not followers of Jesus. In verse 12 through 14, he's going to address the, the audience that he's writing to. He's gonna, he's gonna write directly to them. So the first chapter and a half, he writes about a group of people. Now he's going to write to this group of people, okay? And, and, and if you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of John as he writes this letter and, and maybe put yourself in the position of, these, of the recipients, here John has just gone through a whole list of things about what Christians look like, right? Christians are loving. Christians are humble, Christians are repentant, Christians identify their lost or their sinful condition, right? So John goes through this whole list and he he comes to this point where he he realizes that he's just written this whole big list to a group of people that are humble. And when you write a group, when you write a list uh, of things that should be evidenced in a Christian's life and you write it to a group of humble people, those people naturally are going to begin to do what? They're going to naturally begin to question their own walk with the Lord, aren't they? They're going to naturally say, well, you know, I, I don't love other people perfectly. I, I, I'm not really that submissive of a person. When God shines his light on me, I, I'm usually the one that is pretty resistant to it, right? Right? So you have within this group of people, within this letter, you have John saying to this group of people, he's saying to them, at this point, he's going to to reassure them that that although none of these things are perfect about them, that they still are meant to receive this letter. They still are meant to hear this instruction. What, What John is saying is, is that although we are imperfect, although you are imperfect, although I am imperfect, I am still a child of God and meant to receive this letter and to follow the instructions that are given. Let's read the text beginning in verse number 12. John says, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake." Now John uses this phrase six times I write to you. Six times in three verses. He only uses it 11 times in the entire book. He is, he is reassuring this group of people who, who, who received this letter, and, and it, again it talks about all these different um, evidences of a person's salvation. And at the end of the day, this, perhaps the, the church here, the recipients of this letter are saying to themselves, you know what? So they got the wrong address. This wasn't meant for us to receive. This isn't written to us. This is not written about us. And they begin to perhaps question their own condition and their own position in the Lord. And so John says six times, I am writing this to you. Please, please stop there. So don't go to little children, fathers, and, and young men. Stop there. and and recognize that John is saying to these people, I am writing this letter to you. I am writing this letter to you, body of Christ. I am writing this letter to you, believers. I am writing this letter to you who are are frail and weak and imperfect. You see, it's not about the fact that these Christians were better than the other people that he wrote about in the first chapter, but their direction was different. Their pursuits were different. Their desires were different. I remember uh, uh, teaching a class on elder leadership. And we were going through the different requirements and qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and then in Titus. And and each one of the elders that I was teaching in that class, they they all said, we're we're not qualified to be an elder. Each one of them said, I'm not perfect in that way. I, I, I don't meet those requirements. And what I, was, what I would say to them is it's not about being perfect in any of these things. It's about being in pursuit of these things. It's that this is the direction of your life. This is the passion of your heart. And, and yes, you're going to fail. And yes, you're going to fall on your face. We all do it. God doesn't work with perfect people. He works with imperfect people. So John writes this letter to this group of people. Let me I'm going to give you three things about this group this morning and about this text, and I hope to help you. you. You might be one that's here that has set in the last several weeks of preaching that said, I'm not perfect at loving people. I'm not perfect at repentance. I'm not perfect at being submissive to the will of God or the word of God. I, I want to be. Am I, am I in bad shape here? They're gonna fix me up. There's nothing in there. Is that better? (laughs) Next time, I'm going to bring my bills so that when he checks my pockets, he can find my bills and pay them for me. Okay, let's see if we can get focus back in here. All right. Um, Thank you, guys. I thought I heard something going on. Three things I want you to think about this morning from this text, just real quick. And again, I want you to kind of put yourself in this, in this, in this group of people's shoes, because I think we all live there. And, um, and there, there are times that, that we don't feel like we've arrived. There are times that we don't feel righteous in, in, in really in any of God's commands. And really, ultimately, we're not. It's, it's the right feeling, okay? Someone, I, I, I've always said this, I've often said this, someone who, who sees the word of God and hears the word of God and, and their response is that they have met the standard, I, I'm more concerned about their true salvation than I am about somebody who sees the word of God and feels humbled by it and realizes how far they have fallen away from reaching the standard. Does that make sense? Because it's almost like there's a humility about these people over here that they realize that there is absolutely no way other than Christ. Uh, imputed righteousness that is not ours, but his in us, that I'm ever going to be anything close to what I need to be. And so the people over here who think that they've arrived, you know, I get more concerned about him than I do when I talk to somebody about, you know, whatever it might be, and they're like, yeah, I know, I fall short all the time. Um, it was Paul Washer who once said he was, somebody came up to him and, and, and said something to him about how bad of a person he was, and his response was, is you don't know the half of it. You know, and really, that's true. And I don't, and, I, and that can be somewhat over-pious. I mean, we can we can say that and not be real. But 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 I think an authentic Christian is always going to have the mindset that I don't reach that I don't reach that standard. I haven't I haven't reached some kind of a plateau in the Christian life that makes me worthy. Right. I I think we all deal with that struggle, and I and honestly, I think we all ought to deal with that struggle. I think it's a it's a, it's a picture of humility. And there's anybody in here, honestly, one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest ways that a church is divided is people who think that they've arrived. What, what unites a church is when people realize that there's anybody in here that has arrived. No one. We're all, we're all working towards the same goal. We're all working in the same strength. We're all indwelt by the same spirit, right? Amen. So none of it, nobody in here has arrived. So your struggle might be different than my struggle, but guess what—we're both doing. That's right. We're both struggling. We're both pursuing something that—it's—we're it's, both pursuing something that's beyond our reach, and we're not pursuing it in our own strength. We're pursuing it in the strength of Christ, and we're pursuing it not because we think one day we'll be able to reach it, but we're pursuing it because we have a promise that one day we're going to reach it. Right. If you pursue something that, you know, that you, know, you know without question, there's no way you're gonna get there, but yet someone who was trustworthy made you a promise that you would get there causes you to keep doing what? Causes us to keep pursuing, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter number 10, the Bible literally says that Jesus Christ is going to one day make us perfect. Now, do we believe that that's within our reach? Does anybody in here believe that it's within your human reach to be Perfect. It's not, is it? But it's within Christ's reach. And so when he makes a promise to us, we, we continue to pursue that promise knowing that I, I have no ability to reach this goal, but yet Christ has already reached the goal and he's going to bring me there. And do you know what happens in a team that has that vision? Do you know what happens in a church that has that, division, that, that vision? People start helping each other, don't they? not judging each other, not being critical of each other, but they start helping each other. say, so, you know what? We're, we're pursuing a goal that none of us can reach on our own. So what we'll do is, hey, let me give you a hand up here. Let me give you a, and Christ is the ultimate goal, and Christ is ultimately the one that's gonna get us there. So we're all in this text this morning, and John says six times. I, I, I do not believe that's an accident. John wants these people to know this letter is to you. Because these people are thinking this letter is to somebody who loves right all the time who's always repentant, who's always willing to do what God's word says. This is who this letter is written to, so it's not written to us. And John says, no, it's written to you. It's encouraging, isn't it? Even the whole book, Genesis to Revelation, God could say over and over again, and oftentimes he has to, he says, this is written to you. Can you guys imagine the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who is perfect and holy and righteous and just in every situation, wrote you and wrote me a letter. Sometimes it's easy to believe the devil and to think, hey, it's not for me. No, these things have I written to you. Oh, wait, 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 no, no, wait. Let me say it again. These things have I written to In case you didn't get it the first or the second time, six times. These things have I written to you. Here's why John says that. Number one, because it was an undeserving crowd. It was an undeserving crowd. It wasn't as if they had risen above their flaws. They were undeserving. And John writes to them in spite of of the fact that they are undeserving. Let me give you a few thoughts here about this undeserving crowd. John calls them little children in the text, he calls them fathers in the text, and he calls them young men. And he repeats this process twice as well. Now there are three, there are three different perspectives on why John did this. Number one is that he was trying to distinguish them from an age group. He was calling, He was talking at one point to a group of fathers, at another point, he's talking to a group of younger men. And at another point, he's talking to a group of children. Okay? Based upon the, the Greek terms used here for children, especially, primarily, this argument it has been pretty much rejected. That he's talking about age groups. Old men, young men, and then children. The second thing that it's possible that he's talking about is maturity groups, okay? Meaning old men being those who are full of wisdom, young men, those who are full of strength, and then children are those who are full of questions, right? In- immature believers. This argument is, is adopted by many. And this is a very, very strong argument, and I would not Uh, refute this argument because of the men who stand by this argument I would like to teach you a different argument this morning okay I believe that this is written to a group of people period not based upon their maturity level not based upon their age I believe this is written to a group of people who experience all three of these things on a regular basis are you there with me This makes sense to me because recently I had a conversation with somebody, and during that conversation, I instructed them, right? So what does that make them at that point? They're a child, right? They're receiving instruction, so now they are a child. In the same conversation, they instructed me, which makes them what? Which makes them a father. There was something about the conversation that they were very mature in, they were able to give me instruction, there was another part of the situation that they were very ignorant in, and I was able to give them instruction. So in the same conversation, you have the same people experiencing two of these, what I call, seasons of life. There's another season of life here, and this is those that are strong men. There are times in the Christian life where we are those, where we are those who need instruction. We are those who need wisdom, and it might be today you need wisdom, and tomorrow you're a father, and the next day you need wisdom again. It was funny, as I was kind of thinking about the, the um, process of this text, it almost seems like the way that John comes back, and he, he reverts back to the same thing again. And, and you can almost put it, you can almost boil it down into a day. How many of you in, a, in one day have gone from here to here to here again? Right? We have, we have those ups, those downs, and those ups and downs and ups. And the Christian life is full of those things. The time that we need encouragement, the time that we need help, the time that we, we need someone to instruct us, and, and then there are times that we need to be instructing. We need to be encouraging. We need to be lifting other people up. So I believe that he's talking about three different phases of a day. Fluctuations in our day from being childlike, needing instructions, to being strong, meaning working, doing things, to being full of wisdom, meaning giving that instruction. It's interesting. This is how God keeps us humble. Even the wisest of people have to realize that they need what? What? Matter of fact, one of the definitions of wisdom, according to Proverbs, is that they receive instruction. So one of the wisdoms of being fatherly is that they are teachable. The Bible teaches us that if we want to become wise, we must be, if we want to become followers, if we want to come, become a part of the kingdom, we have to become like what? and yet it encourages us to be wise. I think the connection can be made that wisdom and childlikeness can go together. It's like the weather in Nebraska. I was thinking about the weather in Nebraska is like that. It's like they they say, or it's been said, that you can experience a blizzard and a heat wave in the same week in Nebraska. And I lived there most of my life and it's true. There's pictures of, there's these three pictures, and it shows a, a, a person in a, in a um, you know, heavy coat and helmet, hat, and all the other stuff, and then the next picture is like somebody out sunbathing, and it said, this happened in the same day. Only in Nebraska, right? If you ever go to Nebraska, you'll probably hear this statement made. I probably heard it a thousand times in the time that we were there. If you don't like the weather, somebody finish it for me just wait 10 minutes if you don't like the weather just wait 10 minutes whether we're talking about the weather in Nebraska or we're talking about how life goes it's going to be it's full of seasons isn't it what what did um, ecclesiastes 3 say there's a time right for everything there's a season for for war and there's a a season for peace. There's a season for happiness and joy. There's a season for sorrow. There's a season for for tears and there's a season for rejoicing. We have these seasons and I think John is writing to a group of people who have these seasons in their life. Don't let those seasons in your life become a a point of discouragement. Don't let those seasons of your life become a, a point of doubt. You're gonna have those seasons in your life. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It's, it, Paul, again, John is meaning to encourage these people that just because you have these seasons in your life and you continue to pursue and strive for Christ, is really affirmation that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This was definitely not something that was uncommon to the Old Testament saints. You'll remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Elijah goes up on the mountain and kills. He, 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 he calls down fire from heaven from God, right? To, to sweep up the altar and all the Baal worshipers, their God, um, as, as Elijah said, was asleep, right? Elijah was pretty bold with them, wasn't he? You, you remember the prayer that Elijah talked about? He, he's like mocking them. Your God is asleep. He must be on vacation or something, Right? And then God, and then Elijah prays and God calls down fire from hell, from heaven. (laughs) I think you need to fix this thing again, Michael. It's it's saying things that I'm not saying. Wow, forgive me for that. He calls down fire from heaven, right? He sweeps up the altar and God does a miracle, right? He kills all of those, I believe it was 450 um, um, Baal worshipers, right? Prophets of Baal. Do you know what he's doing the next day? He's running. He's running. He tells God, literally, Elijah, Old Testament man of great faith, right? Here's what he tells God. God, just kill me. I can't handle this. Now, I don't know about you. I have my ups and downs, but I don't know if they're that bad. Honestly, I don't think I've ever reached the pinnacle of defeating 450 prophets of Baal. But nor do I think I've ever reached that down point where I told God, just just kill me. Do you know something? One of the greatest men in the Bible, that's how he felt. That's what he experienced. What was wonderful, though, is that in both of those moments, where did he go? Who did he seek? Who did he pursue? Who? He pursued God. God. In Numbers chapter number 10, Moses is another story of a man who has just experienced wonderful things from God. He has experienced all of these, the, the 10 plagues of Egypt, the deliverance of God's people. And, and, and now he comes to a place where he feels like he can't, can't bear the burden of all of the work that God has called him to, to do. And what does he do? He prays that God would kill him. Jonah is another example of a man who went, he sees a whole, I mean, imagine, imagine if you came into Hollister, California, and the entire town got saved, right? Wouldn't that be great? Okay, you think you'd be on a high, right? What does Jonah do? He prays that God would take his life. You see these ups and downs? They're not just, they're not just for the frail and the weak they're for all of us this is what humbles us job, job chapter number 3 job literally prays to god and he goes from being the he goes from being the wealthiest man in the east and he goes and he prays that he he wishes he would have never been born in john chapter number 18 listen to this flow Peter cuts off Malchus's ear because Malchus is trying to take the Lord, right? And not too long after that, Peter denies Jesus Christ three times, right? Not too long after that, Peter preaches Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. Pretty serious fluctuations. <laughs> you can, we, can, we can get this, can't we? We can understand this. We can see our lives within these men. And this is why John says, hey, I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you as a group. There are times that you're little children. There are times that you're strong and you're bold and you're active. And then there are times that you are mature and you are wise. But remember this, you all experience, we all experience all of these. None of us have risen above it. The undeserving crowd. Number two, the unconditional connection. The unconditional connection very quickly. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, I am writing to you little children because you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you are um, you have overcome the evil one. Right away what we see in this in this in this text of Scripture is that is that John makes no distinction regarding who he's writing to based upon their current condition, meaning that he's not saying, I'm, I'm, I'm writing to those people who are on cloud nine right now and not to those people who are, who are in the dumps of discouragement, okay? So, so in, in other words, John's letter to these people was not based upon, it wasn't conditioned upon where they were in their day. It was based upon who they were not where they were. John wrote to those who were having days of discouragement and having days uh, 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 at the peak levels of encouragement. He wrote to both groups and he wrote the same letter to them because John's letter was not based upon any conditions on what they had done. It was based only on the condition of who they were. He writes to them in spite of their flaws. Again, I believe that he writes to them when he says, I am writing to you six times. He is doing that because these people saw themselves as not being worth it. It wasn't to them. The Lord writes to us in spite of our flaws. When you open up God's word and you begin to read it and take it in and and consume it and you realize how flawed you are, don't look at God's word as being something that is impossible. Look at God's word as being something that is supernatural. That God is going to create these things in us. God's word is not written to discourage us. It's written to equip us so that we might know him who has created us and we might know how to walk so that we can get closer to him. He writes to them in spite of their flaws. He writes to them in spite of their spiritual maturity. Again, children, young men, wise teachers. He He uses family terms here. In each case, he talks about children. He talks about fathers. He talks about father-like figures, our strong men. He uses what we call family terms. Why? Because John is talking to his family. You ever talk to your family members? And sometimes they're up here and sometimes they're down here. Message doesn't change, does it? He writes to them in spite of their spiritual maturity. And he writes to them because they are family He is writing to encourage them, to uplift them, to help them, to to strengthen them. He tells us in chapter number five, I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. He says in chapter one, I'm writing to you that your joy might be full. He writes to them to to uplift them and encourage them and and, uh, affirm them in the faith. And that's how the Lord writes to us and why the Lord writes to us. It's interesting because he says in, the, in, the verse, in verse 12, he says, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And I'm gonna look at that phrase here for a moment, I'm gonna look at it again here in another few minutes. But here's what he says is that in, in the moment where you don't feel like you're worthy, remember this, the Lord hasn't written to us because we're worthy, right? God didn't give us, the, God didn't give us his word because he was writing to a group of worthy people. He gave us his word because it was for his glory. Psalm 23 and verse three, he leads us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake, right? God does what he does, not because he's dealing with worthy people. God does what he does for his own glory, Isaiah 48, verse nine through 11, he says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may may, may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. What does God do? Why does God write this letter? Why does John write this letter? It's not because we're valuable, it's because he's valuable. It's not because we're amazing, it's because he's amazing. So he writes to them an unconditional letter. In spite of their flaws, in spite of their spiritual condition, their levels, he writes to them with family-like words to say to them, your family, we build on, we grow, we're encouraged when we know that we're a part of God's family, then we can do what God wants us to do. The last thing this morning is an unwavering comfort. comfort. An unwavering comfort. What the Lord does in this final phase of this text is he gives you three things that you can hold on to tightly when you are in these phases in your Christian life, right? So think about it with me for a moment. When we're in that childlike phase when nothing seems to make any sense, our temptation is to do what? It's to doubt. It's to be it's to it's to not believe that we our sins have been forgiven. It's to not believe that God is our father. It's to doubt our very the very essence of our salvation. So here's what John does. John gives them a comfort that they can cling to, something that is solid for those moments of childlikeness that they can grab onto and they can know and be safe and secure. The temptation when we become young men and mature, wise adults, maturity level high, the danger in those moments is not that we doubt, but the danger in those moments is that we forget who the author and the source is. At one level, we begin to doubt and become discouraged, the other two levels, it's very easy to become proud. Self-sufficient and self-righteous. The reason why God has given me this letter, the reason why we have done this, the reason for this and this and this is because of how great I am. And, And John's gonna deal with those things. So I wanna give you these three things kind of as a closing. What are some things that we can cling to? When you're in those moments of your life where nothing makes sense to you spiritually, there are some things that you can cling to, that you can hold on to. You can find your security in these things that you are God's. And I mean that in a possessive way. You are God's children. Then there are some things that you can hold on to when you're in those seasons of strength, and there are some things that we can hold on to when we're in seasons of maturity. Let me give them to you very quickly. Seasons of childlikeness, or when we are needy. Here's what he says. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And he comes back to it the very, uh, in the next few verses. And he says in verse 13, I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. The first thing that John tells them is to focus back on the basics Go back to the simple truths that you know are true. They have nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. In in other words, when your Christian life is falling apart, everything is falling apart at the seams, you remember this, Jesus Christ died for your sins. Do you know something this morning? That's enough, isn't it? It doesn't have to do anything with your merit. It has nothing to do with your work, your worthiness. It has nothing to do with you at all. It has everything to do with what Christ has done for you. And listen to me, when we're in those moments of depression and discouragement, our tension needs to come off of this and be put on Jesus, amen? We've got to get our focus back on him, especially when we're in those moments of low discouragement when we begin to doubt whether or not God would really have us, amen, anybody ever been there before? Would God really have me? All you have to do is look at Jesus and know this, God would really have you. It's so encouraging, isn't it? God would really, God would have you so much that he would send his only begotten son into this world to die upon a tree to take your place and to take my place. When you're down in those moments, you have got to get back to the basics. Your sins are forgiven. Amen? Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 8-10. He talks about spiritual growth in the verses before, and he says in verse 8, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, he got down where he wasn't following the Lord, he wasn't walking with the Lord, he wasn't growing in the Lord, to the place where he doubted whether or not he was even a child of God. Therefore, brothers, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Man, when life has you down, when you feel like there is no value at all, when you feel like God would never have you, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Know that your sins are forgiven. Know, number two, that your sins are forgiven know that your sins are forgiven because of him and his glory. That's what he says here, that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, right? Not for your value's sake, not for your importance' sake, for Jesus's name's sake. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 31, the Bible says God has chosen the weak things of the world. God has chosen the frail things, the the ignorant things, the the things that are nothing, so that he might confound the wise, he might confound the strong. He says this at the very end. He says, so that no flesh will glory in his presence, but those that glory will glory in, in the Lord. You see, when you start to look to the cross, you've got to realize, okay, I'm looking to the cross. I see that Jesus died. He died for me, but he did not die because of me. He did not die. He, did, he died for the glory of God the Father. He gave himself up. Philippians tells us this. He gave, he gave himself up so that we might benefit from his work. He gave himself up because of us. Let me make sure I rephrase that. So that you understand, he gave himself up because of us, not because of our value in a positive sense, but because of our sins in a negative sense. Does that make sense? Make that, make that a little bit clearer. We must know that we have been, our sins have been dealt with because of God's glory and for and by his grace. Number three, know that he is your father. The very basic roots, know that God is your father. it's, It's the basics of Christianity. Jesus has died for my sins, and because of that I have become a child of God. Right? When Jesus Christ prayed on a number of occasions in the book of Matthew, as well as in John, he prays to the Father. In those dark moments, in those difficult moments, in those moments where where life is not what it what we think it ought to be, Jesus cries to the Father. And there are seasons in our lives where we just need to go and cry out, Abba, Father, right? That he's our dad. He cares about us. You ever been in those moments in your life where life is just falling apart and you just needed to call your dad? Maybe you don't have a dad like that, but listen to me. If you're a Christian, you do have a dad like that. There are times in our Christian life where we just need to cry out to God, our Father, You may not be able to go to the roots and the depths of all of the theologies about who God is for you, but you can know this, and you ought to know this, that God is your father. Seasons of strength. When we are, I I wrote this down, when we are winning. What are some things that are important to take place when we are winning? Number one is note the seasons of winning. Okay? Okay? identify them, notify, make, acknowledge them. It means that there are seasons in your life where you're going to be prevailing. You're going to be victorious, right? You've been there before too. It's not always the discouraging times. It's not always the times where we feel like we're the student, but there are times and seasons of that Christian life where we feel strong, amen? Anybody in here feel strong sometimes in the Christian life? Okay, Those are moments, those are seasons, those are important to our Christian life. We need to learn to acknowledge them. Number two, okay, he says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Number two, identify why you are strong. Recognize why, where your strength comes from. I've seen it a thousand times where people are walking, they're walking in, in a very consistent life. God is very, uh, very much the, the purpose of their life, they're in the word, they're praying every day, and the devil says, you know what? It's good, everything is good. There's no battle anymore, I'm not out to get you, there's no temptation, you've got it all together, right? And here's what happens. All of a sudden, we're living this victorious Christian life, right? And all of a sudden, we're like, you know, I don't know if I really have time for my devotions today. Oh, boy. I really don't have time to pray anymore. You see, what what John is saying is, is that know where your victories come from. Know where your strength comes from. Because it is in those moments that you have strength that the devil is going to attack you with relaxation and comfort, that you no longer need to fight the battle. but it is in the moments of strength that we're preparing for the, we're preparing for the battle. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's like a war. Man, when you're, when you're not in the war, you're preparing for the war, aren't you? Because you are a soldier. It was said, I believe, on a TV show, and I'm not one that always that likes to quote TV shows, but I'm gonna do it this morning. The Usual Suspect, I actually heard a preacher quote this, and he didn't give the TV show the credit, but I'm going to. There was a movie that was called The Usual Suspects, and here's what the line was. The greatest trick the devil has ever pulled off was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. It's true, isn't it? If he can keep us from warring, if he can keep us from battling, he can take us from here to here in no time at all just by causing us to not do the things that got us to where we needed to be, right? We've got to be in those seasons of strength. We have to recognize what's making us strong and we have to do it more. I didn't say we have to stay where we're at. We have to persevere in it. We have to go further. What makes us strong? You guys know the answer. I just, We just read it to you. It's the word of God. It's what makes us strong. Don't wake up tomorrow and think that you don't need it. One of the great preachers of old was asked this. He said he prayed, I believe he prayed, prayed two to three hours a day. One of the one of, the, um, one of the reporters asked him, how in the world can you pray two and three hours a day and accomplish all of the things that you accomplish? This man was well known and a very busy man. Here's what he said. He said, it would be impossible for me to accomplish what I accomplish and not pray three hours a day. You know what he understood? His ability to accomplish what he accomplished was not his ability to accomplish what he accomplished. It's God's ability to accomplish what he accomplished. He rooted himself in God. And by rooting himself in God, he succeeded. Psalm 1, in your time. In seasons of strength, recognize where your strength comes from. Grow in it and become stronger. Prepare yourself for when the attacks come to cause you to become discouraged. Lastly, seasons of wisdom. He says this about seasons of the father. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. In in other words, he says, the word beginning here means first. It's it's the idea of it as chief foremost. He basically says, I write to you fathers who know him who is supreme. In other words, John says to these, this last group of people, he's like, I, I write to you who have God first. Everything is focused and devoted to him. And it's in these seasons, listen, it's in these, here's what, here's what John is saying. It's in these seasons that we're tempted to make me First. I write to you fathers who know that God is first. Stay there. The most important thing in life that we can get is that God is one. Matter of fact, God is always one by nature. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or things, all things were created through him and for him and by him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be have the preeminence. We hold on to those things that we know about God. We hold on to who he is. We hold on to what he has done for us. We hold on to what he is doing through us. First John three, verse 19 through 21, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and we know, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. My encouragement to you this morning, my challenge to you is, know this, all Christians have these seasons. You're not special because you have seasons in your Christian life. You're not a failure, you're not a success, you are normal. Amen? In those seasons, grab on. Grab on to the things that are sure. Grab on to the things that God has given us. Maybe you're in, this, in here this morning and you're not even, you say, Pastor John, you know what? When you talked about those very basic root things and you said they know that Jesus Christ died for their sins and they know that he is their father, When you said those things, I I can't affirm that. I don't even know those two very basic things. My challenge to you is this, come to Jesus. He will open up your understanding. He will cause you to recognize the sufficiency of his sacrifice for your sins and he will grant you his mercy and his grace. And he will give you a new father. and your life will be changed forever. There's nothing more important, whether it be on Father's Day or Mother's Day or Christmas or Easter, there's nothing more important than the salvation of souls. And so we we plead with you this morning, if you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ died for your sins, and you do not know that God is your Father, I pray that you will seek him through his word, ask him for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to him, plead with him for the mercy that only he can give and may his salvation be your salvation. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for John's letter and his encouragement to us and there are those who are here this morning perhaps who have struggled even in some of these areas and have felt discouraged and down and, and even maybe doubted, I pray that you would lift them up through this um, scripture and encourage them in these seasons of life and help them to hold on to those things that are sure, those things that are biblical, those things that are true. And if someone's here that's not saved, I pray, dear God, that you would bring them to Christ. You bring them to yourself, that they might experience salvation and they might know you personally. We pray you would bless your word and be glorified because of it in Christ's name. Amen.